You know, I, I do love Christmas. Um, I love the holiday season. But I also know that the holiday season comes with a bit of pain, doesn't it? There are many of us who have experienced loss around the holidays. Uh, we've lost family members, loved ones. In fact, I remember talking with one of the doctors that I used to work with, and he told me that it has been his experience that over the years that spouses who have been married for a really long time, that when one of them passes, the average statistically is that 18 months um, it would be till the other spouse passes away. And, and I asked him why he thought that was. And he couldn't really give me an answer. But I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's the loss, in a sense, of, of the hope of living. And as we look at this passage this morning in the scriptures, I'm mindful of the hope that we have in Christ. And, and I guess I'm asking you the question this morning. How long do you think a person can live without hope? How long do you think a person can live without hope? Turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to pick up where Pastor Dave left off, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 26 this morning. And I know you're thinking, gee, Pastor Vince, why don't you cut me and pour salt and, you know, lemon juice in the cut? But I really am not looking to depress you this morning. I'm, I'm looking to encourage you that as believers... We have hope. We have a living hope, in fact, Peter calls it, in the resurrected Christ. And, and I, I want you to see that in the text this morning. I want you to see our hope. And there are a couple of miracles here in the text that, that really draw our attention to that hope. And I want you to see it here this morning. There are a couple of words missing. They've Translators have chosen to take them out of the English text here, and, and this is how I've kind of arranged the message this morning with these two miracles. And uh, it is the word idu in the Greek, or behold, uh, and you would see it in verse 18 as we look at that after the word them, while he was saying these things to them, behold. And then down in verse 20, and behold. You see that? A woman. Uh, who had been walking us through this text, and he's told you there's like a series of three miracles, and then there's the call to discipleship, and then there's another series of three miracles, right? And we're in one of those sections of the three miracles. Following this, we're going to come to the point where a couple of blind men are healed, but Pastor David will deal with that next week. We're looking at these two miracles, and most commentators bunch them together. They consider them like one miracle, and I I tried to answer that question for you in this message, and I hope that I can. But look at the text with me. Let's read it together, and we're going to look at these two miracles, and we'll hopefully gain a more active hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ through them. Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And this news spread 
throughout all the land. Two miracles, one interrupted, uh, one miracle interrupted by another miracle, and, and we sort of wonder why in the world did Matthew link these miracles together? And I hope I can explain that to you. But I want to look at the first one with you. And the first miracle that should give us hope is the resurrection from death. You see that there. Verses 18 and 19. And then I'm just going to pass over the other miracle for now. And we'll deal with verses 23 to 26. I just want to deal with one miracle at a time. And then we'll, we'll uh, separate them out that way. Let me, let me look at the text with you here. It says that uh, the synagogue official came and he bowed down before Jesus. It's an amazing happening here, and, and we ought to take note of it. Just because of the word behold, that should ring the bells to begin with. And, and uh, let me just say, this, this, is, this is the first raising of the dead by Jesus in the book of Matthew. It's the first one that Matthew records for us, but it's not the first raising of the dead that has happened in the Gospels chronologically. David has told us that Matthew has arranged his Gospel in such a way that he's sort of telling a story. It's more thematic, right? And so we know that Jesus raised the widow's son at Nain prior to this. Uh, if you look at Luke 7, 11 to 17, that occurred before this. These miracles actually take place chronologically in Matthew's Gospel on the other side of Matthew 13. And we'll talk about why Matthew relocated them and what his purpose was in doing that. But chronologically, the Luke passage occurs before this one, and that's important to understand because the synagogue official is not just coming up to Jesus because he came up with this idea. Uh, This has happened before, and this man knows this has happened before, that Jesus has raised somebody else from the dead, and so he's approaching Jesus sort of out of desperation, out of desperation. There are three parts to this miracle I want you to take note of here. I'm just trying to help you to hang your hat on a few ideas here, if I can. And the first one, uh, we can just call it the astounding request in verses 18 and 19. This uh, synagogue official, he comes running up to Jesus and he literally prostrates himself before him. The, the word is kind of like if you walk into an Islamic temple and you see them praying on their little carpets and they're prostrating themselves forward with their arms. It actually, if you look at your margin note, is the same word for worship. It's the same word for worship. This is a, a synagogue official that we're talking about here. And it's in a synagogue official, where? In Galilee. Now, remember, uh, the prophet came to his own people, and he is uh, without honor in his hometown thus far. Remember the rebuke that he would give to Galilee uh, later on, that his own hometown rejected him, remember? So this is a synagogue official that we're talking about who has come up to Jesus He falls down before him and, in a sense, out of desperation, uh, begs him to come and raise his daughter from the dead. It's an astounding request when you think about it. Uh, Mark tells us over in 522, and I sort of need to go back and forth between the Gospels to give you the fuller picture of these occasions here because you get a lot of different information from the different writers. They're all... Uh, It's been described like watching a car accident from three different points in the intersection. Uh, We're we're watching this thing unfold in a sort of a panoramic view. And so I need to refer to the other Gospels in order to help you to understand that. Uh, The the official's name over in Mark 5.22, his name is Jairus. Jairus. And, And he comes up to Jesus and he says, his daughter has just died. Now, If you look at the other gospel accounts, you might scratch your head because in one account, it says that she's at the point of death. Uh, And in this one, that's over in Mark uh, 535. In this one, he says she's just died. So how do we explain the apparent contradiction? Well, she has died. There's no doubt about it that she's died. But while Jesus was speaking with Jairus, 
we find out in one of the other Gospels that people came and told him that his daughter died. So here's how we resolve the apparent contradiction. At the beginning of the conversation with Jairus, she hadn't died yet, as far as the synagogue official knew, but he knew she was on the verge of death. While he was still speaking with Jesus, somebody came from his house and told him, your daughter has died. Matthew just chose to record and compress the story and just give us the latter part, that she had died. And that's how we come up with the harmony in this. Now, Luke tells us that this was Jairus's only daughter. His only daughter. And it also tells us that she was about 12 years old. 12 years old. Now, you can imagine uh, the grief that a father would feel. His only daughter, uh, 12 years old, is dying or has died. What would you do? If you had heard stories, there was somebody in the area that could raise people from the dead. What would you do? The lights go off and he goes to find Jesus. And all he has to do is follow the crowd. All he has to do is follow the crowd. So he, he approaches Jesus really as his last and only hope to restore his daughter to life. It's interesting because uh, Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about what Jesus said to him. It just says that he followed him. He just said, I guess said, okay, show me where she is. Let's go. And he just follows. And the disciples follow along. And as they're walking, the crowds are pressing in. They're pressing in. They're hoping to see something. They're, you know, they're congregating. And it probably looks like a rock concert down in the mosh pit, right? Everybody's bouncing around off of each other. And they're all pushing around. And somewhere along the way, this woman comes up behind Jesus while they're heading there. And she grabs the cloak of his garment. And she, she develops this strategy, right? I'm not going to see him face to face. I'm going to sneak up behind him and I'm just going to touch his cloak. And if I do, I'll get healed. And we'll deal with that miracle in a minute. But I want to deal with this one here. I want you to see why this is astounding. Why is this miracle or this request, I should say, so astounding? Well, first of all, as I said, this is a synagogue official. If you look at the text, the word is actually ruler. He's the ruler of the synagogue there in Galilee. And at a point where Pastor David has told us Matthew is climaxing his gospel to this ultimate confrontation in Matthew 12, at the same time hostility and animosity on the part of the leadership is beginning to grow against Jesus, we see a leadership personality in Israel actually believing in him. That's astounding. It's astounding that that occurs now in the text. Secondly, remarkably, this synagogue official, he prostrates himself um, in, in basically what is an act of worship. This is a synagogue. Can you imagine what it would take for somebody of his stature to come to Jesus and prostrate himself before him. This guy that hangs out with sinners and tax gatherers and this Jewish official of the synagogue, this ruler, a well-to-do man is going to come and he's going to worship Jesus in front of a crowd. Think about it. That's a testimony. But most importantly... Uh, he's asking Jesus to do something here that you would think is a, a little bit nuts, right? It, look at the text. He says, my daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she'll live. Who holds that kind of power? Who can do that sort of thing? Do you think you could ask somebody to raise your child from the dead? N Correct me if I'm wrong, but nobody comes back from the dead. Right? It doesn't seem like a logical request. But as I've said, 
he's heard about the raising of the widow's son in name, Luke 7, 11 to 17. And he's heard about the healing of the centurion's son. You remember that story as well? Luke 7, 2 through 10, where the centurion came to Jesus and Jesus didn't even have to be anywhere near the guy. And he healed the centurion's son. Now, the only, the only thing here that's interesting or seems uh, like the, the guy has made a mistake is the fact that he thinks that Jesus has to be near the daughter to raise her from the dead. But he goes to Jesus as his last and only hope. He is desperate. He is desperate and he doesn't know where else to go. Secondly, I'm going to move through these, by the way, and I'm going to get to the application at the end of this message. I'm I'm structuring it a little different here. So rather than try to apply it along the way, I'm going to walk us through these miracles and we'll talk about uh, how and what we do with this at the end. Secondly, I want you to soar. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, depart. Uh, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And here's the response. They began laughing at him. They laughed at him. Uh, Jesus arrives at Jairus' house. And who's there waiting for him? There's a reception party, right? There's flute players. There's mourners. uh, And they're already there. I mean, the girl hasn't been dead. Her body's probably not even cold. And... They're already at the house. Uh, One commentator said they're like vultures. They get paid for this job. And so they're like vultures descending on the job. Uh, In this country, even the poorest people were sort of socially obligated to hire professional wailers and mourners to come for people. Uh, At least two mourners, two women, were required at, at the poorest person's funeral of the day. And this person is a prominent member of society. So for him, it would have been more. It would have been more. He would have walked into the house and there would have just been this racket going on. Women wailing and flute players playing and, and seven swans of swimming. And, <laughs> and it would have, you know, it would have been quite a scene, right? It would have been quite a scene. But think about the nation of Israel. It's the Middle East. It's hot. And bodies decompose fairly rapidly. So getting the people there as quick as possible is probably not a bad idea. But picture the scene. It's chaos. It's wailing. It's it's crying flute players, it's probably dark, candles going, a body laying in the back of the house, everybody's all upset, and into the crowd walks Jesus, like light into the darkness, right? Light into the darkness. And what does he do? He tells everyone, get out. Get out of the house. And he takes himself and the mother and the father and three of his disciples into the room with the girl. And he tells everyone uh, she's sleeping. Now, Jesus is the great physician, but he has not misdiagnosed here. He knows she's dead. Uh, Sleeping is a euphemism in the New Testament. Uh, The understanding is that it's only temporary and that she will rise just like a person waking up in the morning. It is, in a sense, a prophecy. He is prophesying that she will rise at his command. And the response of the crowd is to laugh. Jesus says she will rise again. And they say logically, hey, I'm looking at this corpse. We've looked for a pulse. She's dead. She's not getting up. Dead people don't get up. So the response of the crowd, uh, the imperfect verb here communicates the idea that they, they not only laughed, but they laughed repeatedly to the point of scorn. They mocked him. 
They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They even suggested to Jairus that, that he stop bothering Jesus because it's too late. She's already gone. As if, well, Jesus could maybe heal her while she's alive, but now that she's gone, forget about it. It's too late. It's too late to do anything now. She's gone. All hope is lost. Uh, Jairus is hoping against hope that Jesus can do something. It's an astounding request. It's an antagonistic response. And part three, the astonishing result. Uh, Let your eyes drop down to verses 25 and 26. When the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And this news went out into all the land. Isn't that a nice, that's probably one of the biggest understatements I've ever read in the New Testament. He came into the house, he touched her by the hand, and she was resurrected from the dead, is the idea here. Uh, A resurrection from the dead. This is an astonishing, I mean, talk about an understatement, right? Raising the dead, if you look at your... Old Testament is something only the greatest prophets in Israel ever did. And even that was scant, right? Elijah in 1 Kings 17, verses 21 and 22, and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets in the history of the nation, are attributed to raising people from the dead. But nobody since then, even the New Testament record after Jesus only records two resurrections from the dead, and that would be one at the hands of Peter and one at the hands of Paul. This is amazing. This is amazing. But why did Matthew be so brief, and why did he include what he included? Well, here's the crux of this story. If you're a Hebrew and you're reading this story, remember the theme of Matthew's Gospel Here is your king, right? Behold your king. Here's the crux of the story. Through the eyes of the Hebrew, which is more significant? (coughs) Excuse me. That he raised somebody from the dead or that he touched a corpse while he was doing it? In the eyes of a Hebrew, you would have to see that Numbers 19, 11 to 22 prohibits the touching of a corpse. It is the worst possible kind of ceremonial defilement that a person could bring upon themselves. To touch a corpse is to defile oneself. So Jesus is not only the authority over death, he's the authority over defilement as well. He's the sinless one, And so he cannot be defiled. But look at the text. What does it say he did? He took her by the hand. I mean, talk about defilement, right? He didn't just stand over her and say, arise. Or he didn't do it from a distance. He went and he grabbed her hand. That's significant. Haggai... I'm going to turn you back to your Old Testament where the pages are all stuck together. Turn back to Haggai, chapter 2 and verse 13. This would be in page 940 if you're using a pew Bible, by the way. Chapter 2, verse 13 of Haggai. It says, Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Okay, so here's the thing. You touch a corpse, you're not only defiled, but anything you touch after the fact becomes defiled as well. 
you are ceremonially unclean, and until you deal with the problem, you continue to be unclean. This was astonishing. This, this is... The resurrection is amazing in itself, right? Bringing somebody back from the dead is amazing. But the fact that the Holy One of Israel would touch a corpse while doing it in the eyes of a Hebrews is just as amazing. And we need to see that. This is going to play into the second miracle as well and what binds the two together. Let me just ask you a question. Who has the power over life and death? Answer me. God alone, right? God alone. The Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, is unable to be contaminated by sin and death because He is life. And He has power over death. In Him is life, the Scriptures say. And that life is the light of men. John 1, right? Now, notice with me, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to make too much application here because I'm going to do that later, but notice with me, it says this news went out into all the land. The word news in Greek is, is the word fame. It's, where, it's almost a transliteration. It's famos. Uh, it's where we get the word famous. And, and Jesus, because of this miracle, became famous throughout all the land. News spread far and wide. Based upon Jairus' faith, Jesus heals his daughter. Now, I just want to, I'm going to make a side note here. Just shut off the sermon for just a moment. And let's take a side trip, a rabbit trail, a detour, uh, whatever you want to call it. There is a, what I think is a pernicious evil swirling around the church these days that says that only if you have enough faith can you be healed. But look at this text with me and look at this story. Do you think the little girl could exercise faith in order to be healed? I mean, think about it just for half a second. She could not exercise faith for herself. Her father exercised faith. And because of his faith in the in the power of Christ and and his belief in who Jesus was, Jesus did this for him. But the little girl was not saved, if you will. I mean, the text literally says saved. But it wasn't based on her exercise of faith. And there is a lie, beloved, going around in the church today, and it is a shameful one to tell people that the only reason they die is because they don't have enough faith. Or the only reason they can't be healed is because they don't have enough faith. Or maybe even they're not saved. That's why they can't be healed. Beloved, what a horrible thing to tell somebody. Jesus does these things because of who he is and and the messianic hope of healing came with him But it's not a one-to-one transaction that if you have enough faith, you're going to be healed. The New Testament does not promise that. Not from physical infirmity. Let's just play that to its logical end for just a moment. If everybody dies, then that would mean what? That everybody dies in unbelief, right? Because they don't have enough faith to be healed. There's nothing that could be more wrong and I think more hurtful to believers and has caused more damage in the church than this of late. And I I just want to debunk that because it's not biblical thinking. Do you believe that you will die one day? We all have an appointment. I guarantee it's coming, right? And if not, the only way out is... Christ's return, right? And we're translated and we meet him in the air. 
But if you do die, where does your hope lie? Do you believe that Christ has the power to raise you from the dead? And the only way you can believe that is if you believe that he's alive today. Jesus is alive. And you and I have to come to grips with that question. Do we hope in a place? Do we hope in an event? Or do we hope in a person? We hope in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our living hope, Peter calls him. Let's look at this second miracle, if we can. What I'm calling the restoration from defilement. uh, Verses 20 to 22. Let's just talk about this woman's desperate predicament here. Verses 20 and 21. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will literally be saved. I will, I will be healed. Now, while Jesus is on the way to resurrect Jairus' daughter, this situation happens. I've told you about the crowd. Uh, this woman has been suffering from a hemorrhage for the last 12 years. Uh, interestingly, how old was Jairus' daughter? Twelve. How long has she been suffering from the hemorrhage? Twelve. That's not the connection between these stories, but it is interesting, isn't it? (laughs) Let's do some fanciful exegesis here, and let's see what we can come up with. No, it is interesting. What I want you to see here, this is one writer called the scandalous faith. Uh, This woman, in the midst of a crowd, she sneaks up behind Jesus and just tries to grab either the corner of his prayer shawl or his outer garment. Little tassels hang off the prayer shawl, you know, those little blue and white tassels. So some people believe it was the tassel. Some people believe it was the cloak. It doesn't matter. Uh, Let's look at this illness for just a moment. This would have been essentially a nonstop menstrual cycle. Nonstop. I know that appeals to a lot of you ladies out there. And I'm sure you probably can identify with this. But in Jewish society, um, Mark tells us that this poor lady, it says she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. This poor lady has been having this problem for 12 years. And it's been getting worse. And she's given everything she's got to try to get better. Uh, Luke adds for us in Luke 8.43, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, to make matters worse, and here's the connection between these stories, to make matters worse, her condition is not just a physical problem. It's a social and a spiritual problem as well. And that's what we have to see. A woman in her condition would have been considered continually, ceremonially defiled. In fact, uh, Leviticus fifteen nineteen to 33 says that if she touched anyone or anything, then she rendered that person or that thing unclean as well for the rest of the day. And the problem is with her, there's no end to it. So every day she's defiled for another day. For 12 years, she would have been pushed out of society. Nobody would have wanted to be near her. She would not have had anybody touch her. She may even be divorced because her husband would not want to be continually defiled. Now, why this is scandalous is because this woman, there's a throng around Jesus. She's not supposed to touch anybody. She's ceremonially defiled, but where is she? She's in the mosh pit. She's touching everybody. 
right? She's coming up behind Jesus and she's about to touch him and his cloak. She's, she's so desperate. She's willing to defile Christ and everybody else in the crowd to get over this situation. Defilement is the thing that connects these two stories. And Jesus' power over defilement and his ability to restore these two people. At this time, you know, many of the teachers in Israel would even avoid touching a woman uh, because they didn't know if she was menstruating or not. So they wouldn't even touch them. They didn't want to defile themselves. So, So this woman could not touch. She could not be touched. As I said, she probably never married. She was probably divorced. She was completely marginalized from Jewish society. All alone and unable to do anything. She couldn't even get a job. This woman's predicament is desperate. And her only hope is Jesus Christ. Her only hope is Christ. And that hope is within her grasp. And she's going to reach out and she's going to take it. She says to herself, just, just let me get to him. Just let me touch his garment and I'll, I'll be saved. I'll be healed. Part two We see Jesus' display of power. Verse 22. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once, at once, the woman was made well. Most translators would say immediately. So she presses in. She grabs Jesus' garment. Again, in the eyes of Jewish society, she has rendered him defiled. She's rendered everybody else around her defiled. But Mark tells us that when she touched Jesus' garment, um, it says the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately like that. I can't snap like Pastor David, sorry. I don't know how he does that. Remarkable. In one instant, Jesus does what 12 years of doctors and tons of money could not do for this woman. HMOs? Ha! Right? Jesus is the best universal health care coverage, by the way. Now, Mark adds some more color to this story. Look at it with me. He says in Mark 5.30, Jesus perceived in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth. Isn't that amazing? He felt the power drain. He felt the power drain. So Jesus says, who touched me? I love this. The disciples get a little snippy here. And they go, uh, Lord, you see the crowd pressing in and you want us to tell you who touched you? Really? And you know, it must have been a huge throng. As I said, everybody's pressing in. Nobody has any idea. But uh, Mark says that the woman comes up to Jesus and like Jairus, she fell down before him and told him what she had done. She worshiped him. And Jesus reassures her that her display of faith had resulted in this healing. And don't miss his compassion here in this story too. What does he call her? Everybody else doesn't want to have anything to do with this woman. And what does he call her? He calls her daughter. A term of endearment. It's amazing. What a remarkable display of power over sickness and over defilement. But this is what the coming Messiah was supposed to bring to Israel, was it not? Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, what? We're healed. So why are these two miracles showing up in the narrative now? As we've said, Matthew has arranged his gospel thematically, not chronologically. Why take something that occurs after chapter 13 and move it all the way forward to chapter 9? Why include it in the rest of these miracles? What is Matthew doing? What is his purpose? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Matthew's telling a story. And the story is, Israel, behold your king. Behold your king. And the king in chapters 5 to 7, has presented himself to the nation and called his citizens to order, if you will. He's performed all these staggering miracles which prove his deity and his Messiah credentials. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 17, he's called the nation to repentance and has continued to do so. The passage Pastor David talked about last week Jesus identified himself as the bridegroom. You remember that? In other words, you need to celebrate my arrival, not mourn. I'm here. Bust out the balloons. Let's have a party. I'm here. The long-awaited Messiah is here. And these two miracles are here as a living illustration or living illustrations of what Messiah was offering to the nation as a whole right from the Old Testament. When Messiah came, he would offer Israel restoration, right? Daniel 9 says, Daniel 12, pardon me, that he would resurrect the dead from the ground. Isaiah 53 and 54 that he would bring cleansing from defilement, healing and restoration of the nation. And Matthew has lined these things up in a way to show us that this is the long-awaited Messiah. And he's fulfilling exactly what he was supposed to out of the Old Testament. Now, as we know, if we look at Acts 3.19, Israel didn't just reject it the first time here. They rejected it a second time when the apostles offered the same thing. And in fact, why don't you look at that with me? Because the language there is very interesting. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. This is Peter speaking to the nation's leadership here. And he says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing or renewal may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. If you will repent and return, you will be restored, you'll be refreshed, you'll get the kingdom. You'll get the kingdom. And they rejected it a second time. So what do we do with this? Well, what's the application here? Well, it's narrative, so it's difficult. But, but as I prayed over this and meditated on it, I see kind of a twofold application here. And let me, just, let me just tell you what I'm thinking. One is what I'm calling a broad worldview application. The other I'm calling a more personal, narrow application, okay? So the worldview, the broad. The gospel is what? It's hope, isn't it? Isn't it hope to a lost and dying world? Didn't Jesus come for the very purpose of cleansing people from defilement? Sin makes people sick. Sin defiles people. We could not do enough good to get ourselves up to God. So God had to extend himself to us in the person of his son. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. And in a sense, he came and he touched the unclean. 
in the broad sense, uh, without becoming defiled by it. And I believe as believers, as those who represent Christ in this world, that it is our responsibility to, as defiled people who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, to touch the unclean. Beloved, we need to touch the unclean. We need to take the gospel to people. This is all about hope. And we live in a world without hope. They are hopeless. They are defiled by sin. And they've got nowhere else to go but to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, it is our mandate to take the gospel to them. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's a, we're in our ivory towers and we're all clean and they're all sinners out there. No, we're sinners in here too, right? Isaiah 64, 6, right? For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We're all defiled. Yet Christ extended himself to us we know love in this that he loved us first right secondly on a more personal narrow view let me just say this uh, these gos- these miracles are really the gospel in micro they're they're small view what i mean by that is jesus came to those who were defiled by sin and spiritually dead And he offered them cleansing and life. But beloved, that's you. That's you. He came and offers you life. He offers you restoration from your defilement. Sin defiles. And you're defiled. And if you don't know Christ, you're still defiled. So he offers it to you. He offers cleansing from the defilement of sin and restoration with your Creator. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Secondly, He offers life. Ephesians 2, to those who are spiritually dead. New life. And not only now, but also for the rest of eternity in the resurrection. Life. Life. I alluded to John 1. Why don't you turn there real quick? Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Turn over to 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Jesus is life. And if you're not connected to Him, you will die. Our hope is in the person of Christ. He offers life. In Him is life. Finally, First uh, Peter one three I alluded to it earlier. Uh, he offers hope for the hopeless. Beloved, have you come here this morning hopeless? Are you without hope? Jesus Christ is the answer to that. He himself embodies hope. We ought to hope. Because our hope is alive. 
So let me ask you this morning. Jesus came to his own, but John says that his own received him not. Will you receive your compassionate king this morning? Or will you embrace him as your only hope in this life and the next? Or will you reject him like Israel did? What will you do? He is, for believers, Titus 2, the blessed hope. He is the blessed hope. And he is your only hope. And he is hope for the hopeless. Let's pray. Our merciful God, we thank you for allowing us to know the hope of Christ. That, Father, you would allow these gospel writers to record these things for us that grant us hope beyond what this world has to offer. That, Father, our hope can be bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are so grateful for that hope beyond the grave. It is something that we all face one day. We know that we have an unavoidable appointment with death. And yet, as Peter says, our hope lives. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for his atoning work on our behalf that cleanses us from our defilement. We thank you for the restoration and the righteousness that we receive from him by faith. Father, may we take up the mantle, as it were, and take this gospel of hope to a lost and dying world. Father, may your spirit enable us to be bold in our witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If anything I have said this morning has stirred you and you want to speak to me after the service, I'll be down here in the front. God bless you. Have a great weekend.